show it is daniel Orban coming to you live from the dream imaginate sports studios it is 9 a.m out on the east coast 6 a.m out on the west coast hope you're hanging in there washing your hands social distancing staying safe these are crazy times we're living in and it's having an effect on every aspect of life whether that is church family whether that is business whether that is recreational sports no part of our lives are untouched and uh it has been quite the uh, remarkable interesting um i don't know what all the words you want to use uh time uh, that I could ever recall. I have lived through hurricanes. Uh, I have seen the aftermath and devastation left behind. And it is, uh, it, it's never uh, a fun moment when a hurricane comes through. Um, and, and then you have all the cleanup and things that, that, that you have to deal with afterwards. But what people don't understand about a hurricane if you've never been through one is is if you have a hurricane come through your area it typically leads to an economic boom in the five to ten years after hurricane hits there's a bunch of construction booms business booms growth um it's it's an odd uh part of the the aftermath of a hurricane uh that that comes uh as a result of a storm like that what we're experiencing worldwide with the coronavirus um, is is on a scale that's just unimaginable in terms of every aspect of life that's being um, you know hit on a personal level, but also on a macro level. Uh, everybody's dealing with this. It is um, it's one thing to have a hurricane, you know say Katrina that hit Mississippi and um and then the aftermath of Katrina uh led to the the flooding of the the levee system in New Orleans and you have all of this kind of aftermath and and all this stuff going on uh in that area along the Gulf Coast and and really it was it, the, the the it was felt um you know, in a large swath along the Gulf Coast. But if you were living in California, your life was unaffected. If, if you were living in Utah, Wyoming, Illinois, New York, your, your life was generally unaffected. And the supply chains and the, and, and the resources to get stuff into the hurricane zone, you know, were, were relatively easy. Um, you know, things started shipping in and, 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 you had tent cities pop up that people were coming in to work and clean and do and whatever. The problem, what we're seeing here is the scale of this effect means that there's really not a safe zone at the moment uh, that is that is fully operational. So, you know, families are dealing with all sorts of, of economic realities that maybe they weren't, you know, financially prepared for. 
Uh, they hadn't, uh, you know, been able to create a financial nest egg to, to weather them through, uh, you know, a, a layoff. Um, maybe, you know, they were um, thinking this was going to last, uh, you know, a couple of weeks and it's lasted longer. And so therefore they've depleted those savings. Whatever the case may be, we're all in this situation together. We're all having to sort through, work through, you know, the realities of this, and there's just no way around it at the moment. And it's having an effect on our sports as well. And, uh, we, you know, mainly in the fact that right now there are no sports, everything is on lockdown, everything is shut down. And that is not just professional, that's that's adult amateur, that's youth as well. We've, we've talked about on the show that, you know, the, the NPSL has canceled their season uh, one of the the largest uh, adult amateur leagues in the country is has said, you know, look, our our short two month Cape Cod style summer season that most of our teams play in uh, is is not going to take place this summer. So now you've got teams sitting and scrambling, trying to figure out uh, how to navigate the uncertainties of no league to play in. If things resume, what do they do? Where do they go? If they still want to play, what are the options available? There, there are all sorts of, of things that youth clubs are having to deal with. And some of these clubs are dealing with them well. Some of them are, are doing a really terrible job at being uh, a, a vital part in a service to their players and their families. Some clubs have just said, you know what? We're just done. We're going to, we're not going to issue any partial credits or refunds. We're not going to um, provide or try to provide any resources, any ongoing uh, discussions, training, you know, interactive zoom sessions. We're just, we're, we're closing business. We'll see you in the fall. And thank you for the money. Um, that is, in my view, that's despicable. Um, there are other clubs that that are trying to do things. They're trying to send out fun games and resources and reach out to their players and you know have uh, productive conversations with the families, with the players. Uh, they're facilitating, um, you know, community uh, through. You know the these online you know virtual meetups. Uh, they're providing remote uh, technical individual training. Um, you know there there are clubs around the country that are trying to do um, some good stuff by their players, um, but uh, not all of them. And and we should see more of it. And and really, what we what we're seeing. Uh, at the moment is clubs show their true colors when when they're up against the wall where do they go what do they do what are they trying to um, accomplish during this time are they trying to retool and get better are they trying to reach their families or are they just you know we're here for the money. When it's convenient, we're going to take it. When it's not, you're on your own. Best of luck. And and now's the time I think families need to take stock of 
what they're seeing. They need to take stock of the club experience that they're having. Whether that club experience is a club that plays in-house, whether that's, you know, your child is playing in-house in a league, uh, a rec league, community club type of setup, whether that's, you know, paying hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars to play in these uh, really expensive travel clubs. Um, whatever the case may be, you should take stock of the experience you're having right now. What is the club doing for you? How are they trying to help you in this moment? And that that's that's an observation that should be be we should be having. Every family should be having right now in the youth spaces. What is my club doing? What are they doing for us? And you know, are they are they trying to? serve be a service to us are they trying to help us in this moment now it doesn't mean that you have to do everything the club sends out and it doesn't mean that that you know um if they're if they're sending stuff out and and you don't feel like it's you know the best thing ever then whatever but they're they're making effort right if they're showing effort that's what we should be looking at is are these clubs showing effort one of the things that you see in this these times right now where there's just uncertainty everywhere. We, we don't have a timeline. We don't know when this thing ends. We don't know uh, when there is a definitive cure or that there is a definitive cure at this point. Everyone's working on, in the medical community, ways to treat this, ways to prevent this, ways to, to cure it, ways to you know uh, create vaccines for it. All these things are going on, and we, we hear you know social distancing and timelines of this and that, and, 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 and we have to adjust based on whatever happens in this space or whatever happens with this. In, in that reality, living in that world, um, that uncertainty also affects, um, you know, these clubs and what they're doing and, and how they're operating. And, and so they don't know, right. They can't give us answers if you're in that space, but what they can do is give us effort, right? They may not be able to give us answers, but they can give us effort. Uncertainty is a thing that is, 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 is crippling to an organization, uncertainty is crippling to the economy uncertainty is crippling to our personal lives we don't know what we don't know and sometimes that scares us we don't know what we don't know and sometimes that holds us hostage because we can't do anything we can't move forward we can't proceed we can't build we can't get out and do we're stuck. It's almost like we're frozen in time, but time is still passing us by. And we can't move with it. Uncertainty is terrible. It's awful. The worrying, the waiting, the unknown, it's crippling. Uncertainty is a disease that has been plaguing U.S. soccer for far longer than the coronavirus. Uncertainty has been permeating the culture of the U.S. Soccer Federation for decades. There's no vision. There's no bold leadership. There are no solutions over the horizon. They're there, but they're not coming. 
Why? Poor leadership. Leadership that is not handling the sport with all as its best intention, with all as its focus. Uncertainty plagues the youth soccer space. No one knows where things are day to day, long before coronavirus. Why? A lack of leadership, lack of clarity. You have U.S. club soccer and U.S. youth soccer and all of these different uh, functions and programs. You have the U.S. Soccer Development Academy, the Federation in competition with its sanctioned members. Uncertainty everywhere. There's not a clear roadmap or path for a family. Uncertainty in the player development space. What's best for your kid? I don't know. Where do you live? Who's around? Who's the coach? Uncertainty everywhere. You're trying to figure out the best decision for your child. But there are so many unknown factors. Uncertainty everywhere. Is it the right fit? Is it the right club? Do you have the right amount of money? Uncertainty everywhere. Uncertainty is plaguing American soccer in such a fashion that a federation and a nation that should be at the table of the best soccer nations on earth is so far behind of its potential. Our U.S. women's national team win despite the system. They win despite the uncertainty. And they've had to deal with the uncertainty themselves. The uncertainty of whether they ever get treated fairly. The uncertainty of whether their federation actually believes they are of equal value to their male counterparts. Uncertainty is plaguing every aspect of American soccer. If you're an amateur club right now, you have the uncertainty of whether you can exist next season. You have the uncertainty of whether you can play this season. You have the uncertainty that you cannot get away from. Can we do it? Can we sustain? Can we survive? Uncertainty everywhere. There's always choices in life. What do we choose? Where do we go? What club do we want to play for? What school do I want to go to? What job do I want to take? Who do I want to marry? There are choices. There's uncertainty. But you can make those choices. You can find a place of confidence and comfort in your choices. The problem with uncertainty in American soccer 
is that the structure, the system, the rules, and the people in charge have created a culture of uncertainty that has paralyzed and crippled our potential. It is if it is as if our country has been frozen in time. Time's still moving by. Countries are still developing and investing in the sport. But we're we're not operating with that level of investment. If you look at the investment in our sport and what you see on the professional level, it's pennies on the dollar compared to the other sports in Amer- here in America. It's also pennies on the dollar to countries around the world and how they treat the sport of soccer. There's this excuse that basketball, American football, and baseball are just too much for American soccer to handle. I don't buy it for a second. There's more American youth players playing this sport than any other sport in America. Millions of registered players play this sport every year. The problem isn't interest. The problem isn't desire. The problem isn't ambition. The problem isn't economics. We have all the resources we would ever need to be the greatest soccer country on earth. The problem we deal with is uncertainty. Can I build a sustainable club in this culture, in this structure? The answers are inconclusive. More uncertainty. For every outlier that is Detroit City or Chattanooga, there are dozens of clubs that don't make it. Right now, uncertainty is facing staring a hole into our professional leagues. They are dealing with it in ways that they probably never imagined. Those at the very top of the food chain, Major League Soccer, they dictate the culture and system, the architecture, which everyone else has to deal with. They manipulate and control the system in a way to create certainty for themselves at the expense of everyone else. And even they are now facing uncertainty. Without a television contract worth any money. When you're talking about $90 million shared with the Federation and themselves, those are pennies, 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 pennies on the dollars of what it could be, should be in America. It's laughable. It's a joke. It's embarrassing. But it's intentional. They've done it to themselves. And they've limited everyone else and created such a, a, an environment of uncertainty so that they can have something that they can count on, something they can guarantee themselves. And in the process, they have created a system that relies primarily 
on match day revenue. Parking, real estate, tickets, beer, concessions. They're in the family event business. They need a sellout. Clubs and leagues and countries around the world. Their primary source of revenue is media rights, commercial rights, things that can be exponentially more lucrative. And in many cases are much more lucrative than match day revenue. After all, you can only get so much money out of 70,000 people. But if I can get a media deal that can harness 7 million, 70 million, 300 million people, a billion people, it's worth so much more. Uncertainty is plaguing every aspect of American soccer. The professional landscape can't escape it. The amateur space, the youth space. Right now, there's uncertainty facing referees who count on and rely on the revenue of their work. Uncertainty everywhere. State associations, leagues, clubs, all looking at the possibility of a new reality going forward. Will families, A, have the money to deal and pay and invest at the levels they paid in the past going forward for the foreseeable future? Uncertainty, no one knows. And will these families, if they have the money, reprioritize how they spend it? Do they start to trim back and cut back so that they can put more money into a rainy day fund so that this never affects them the way this situation has ever again? Uncertainty everywhere. We can't get around it. We can't escape it. We can't run away from it. Uncertainty is, is in our face, and it is, it is an inescapable reality. The coronavirus has done some major, major work on the life of people all over the world. It's affecting us everywhere. But in the uncertainty of American soccer life, that's been created by the United States Soccer Federation. That is a problem. In the absence of leadership, we have uncertainty. We have a toxic culture. We have a group of individuals who keep it in the family. Why? For personal gain. That gain may be power. It may be access. It may be money. It may be a sense of feeling like I'm, I'm important. Status. But that has all happened at the expense 
of 99.999% of American soccer. We have uncertainty everywhere. Youth clubs are facing it. Pro clubs are facing it. The Federation is facing it. In much of the uncertainty that has existed within American soccer outside of the coronavirus is U.S. soccer's abdication of leadership. Bold vision that unites, connects everyone should be the goal. How anyone within U.S. soccer can argue that we should have classes of people and organizations in this country, that some people should matter more than others when it comes to opportunity and access is despicable, plain and simple. We should be a country that is serious about growing the game and uniting and connecting every single person in this country together. Go start a club. Build it as big as you can build it. You may never reach professional soccer. You may never reach the top of professional soccer. But you had the opportunity. That's all anyone should be asking for. And that's what the Federation should be leading the charge for. A vision that connects, harnesses, unites, leverages all of the American soccer potential. We'll never get there in the way that we're operating now, where we breed proactively, breed uncertainty. We do this, and we've seen this done within American soccer for power and access, control, money. We are a ginormous country, a world power in so many areas and in so many ways, but we are intentionally not in American soccer because those who have been in charge of the Federation for decades don't want that to happen. If they did, they would make different decisions. Instead, we are left with the aftermath of the hurricane that is poor leadership within the Federation. And that is primarily uncertainty. You can start a league, you can build a club, but there are so many unknowns, so many uncertainties, that it limits what you can do. Too many investors look at the American soccer landscape and don't want to engage. Why? Because they are unsure that they could ever make it, make it go, make it work. If there's one thing that we can change, one thing that we can do going forward, it's to create a vision and a plan and a roadmap that unites everyone and removes as much uncertainty as possible from the American soccer landscape. Our sponsor uh, this half hour 
is Ductic Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G Brand.com. And uh, if you haven't gone to check them out, you should check them out today. They um, they make these really cool journals, and they've got like the soccer lines on it, and they've got these notes. I mean, like it's it's really really good, useful resources. Right now, maybe your kids are watching a lot of matches, and this is a way that they could actually chart some runs or make some notes. Maybe their club's sending them some information. It's a great great gift. Um, maybe you're a parent and you just want to say thank you to your coach who is actually trying to help you send them a a ductic journal say thanks coach go to ducticbrand.com today use promo code dw show you'll get 10% off of your order at ducticbrand.com we'll be right back after this
Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate it. Uh, coming up right now, we we are going to uh, bring you an interview that we did. It was a Zoom interview we did with Paul Tenorio of The Athletic on Friday. And I uh, want to share that with you today. And uh, appreciate uh, Paul taking some time to to chat with us and uh, kind of discuss some of the things that he's seeing. And, um, and we get into a little bit of... Uh, Major League Soccer and the scheduling and the uncertainty around the, the schedule and all, all soccer at this point of, of what is the reality going forward and look at one of the things that I, I'm passionate about, which is getting American soccer on the right calendar. A youth soccer is already on it. The, you know, everyone that, that sits here and says, well, you know, we can never do this with professional soccer. Well, we're already doing it in the youth space. We're running August. And we're ended up in July, June, whatever, and 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 we could do this on the professional landscape. It, it's it's just a matter of the fact that Major League Soccer hasn't wanted to, and that's the bottom line. So uh, we talk about this, and we talk about a little bit of that reality of of what is what is at stake, what should be taking place, um, you know, in, in terms of these conversations right now with the uncertainty when they can get back what what is that and what is the opportunity to make some changes so i appreciate paul taking the time to uh to do that and to to uh spend some time with us to talk a little bit about that as well so this is uh this is a conversation uh that an interview that we did with paul tenorio uh we recorded this past friday for today's show i hope you enjoy it we'll be back after this interview to wrap up today's show thanks uh to, to paul for coming on the show we appreciate it Paul. Hey, what's going on? How are you, my man? So I've got kind of a janky setup here. I'm trying to stay somewhere where we won't hear the baby freak out once she gets put down for a nap. So I'm in my room in a back hall. So uh, It's okay, my man. How you been? Hanging in, man. Hanging in. How about <laughs> you? Yeah, same here. You know, juggling uh, a million different things at the same time. So, yeah. Um, you know, just uh, really a lot of uh, watching, waiting, you know, for any kind of definitive uh, timelines or, you know, just everything's kind of up in limbo. So, yep. um, yeah, just I think it's going to be a while before we get one of those. But we'll see. I, yeah, I agree. Um, I talked to. Uh, a parent of one of uh, the team that I coach, he's an ER doc and he, um, he was basically like, you know, here's, here's kind of what we're hearing at the hospital and certainly didn't sound like we're going to be, uh, back to work and running around as normal in two weeks. I'll put it that way. No, no, I don't <laughs> think so. So anyway, um, well, good deal. Well, uh, thanks for jumping on. Yeah, no problem. Um, We'll air this on Monday. Okay. So um, I just wanted to kind of, uh, I guess, pick your brain on a couple things. Some, some. Uh, I was going through some of the Q and A you and Meg did the other day, and I uh, wanted to kind of follow up with a couple uh, questions and just kind of get you know your thoughts on what you're seeing and hearing from the American soccer landscape, especially right now with uh, 
um, you know, all the stories that you guys have been covering, but also just all of the, uh, the, the COVID-19 effects as well. Right. So there's a lot of things going on. Um, and, and I want to start there. So with the, with the coronavirus situation, what are you hearing in terms of, um, you know, the leagues? Uh, I know we saw an announcement with the NPSL saying, hey, we're, we're just going to cancel the season. Um, what are you hearing from some other leagues, maybe some of the pro leagues, uh, in terms of either preparations for abbreviated or reformatted season or canceled season? Uh, what are you hearing along those lines? Yeah, I think it's really interesting what the leagues are kind of thinking right now. When you look at MLS, they are, and USL for that matter, they are so dependent on game day revenue that it becomes very difficult for them to start a season without fans in the stands, right? They would take almost a bigger financial hit to do that than they would to wait as long as possible. So I think that's what you're going to see from Major League Soccer. We might see the NBA or the NHL Major League Baseball come back early without fans in the stadium and play these games in order to um, fulfill their TV contracts and start to make some some money back and, and get the games underway. With MLS, I think they're going to wait to the last possible minute before they start to play games. And that's where things get a little bit kind of up in the air because we don't know when it's going to be safe to put 20,000, 25,000 in Atlanta, 45,000, 60,000 people in a stadium. I mean, that's essentially a biological time bomb potentially. So um, there are a lot of questions that MLS is going to have to answer. So as part of that, there are different scenarios for, for that league. One, if they come back later in the year, they could potentially have, depending on when they come back, they want to play all 34 games and have a playoff. They need all that revenue. They need to try to make that money back. Once you hit a certain point, say August, September, that's not possible. So then you'd be looking at a condensed schedule. And there are all these different scenarios of what would that schedule look like? How many games would it be? You know, could they create something that would be attractive for TV partners? USL is the same idea. They're taking an even bigger hit financially. I mean, you know, MLS, we talk about this league like it's, you know, a third world league or something just because it's not equal to the European leagues in quality on the field. These owners in MLS are billionaires, okay? So they're going to be okay. You know, USL is much more equivalent to the leagues we're seeing around the world where this financial impact is going to hit them hard. And, right. and that's the big concern I think we should have as an American public. What does this do to the USL clubs? What does this do to the MPSL clubs? What does this do to the NWSL clubs? Obviously, they have the backing of US soccer to keep that thing afloat, but you want to maintain the momentum of, of the World Cup and now the Olympics are gone. So those smaller leagues, I think, are where I think the bigger concern comes in because we're going to probably see some clubs fold or take a hiatus because they can't take, can't absorb this, this hit. Now, part of the structure of USL might make that a little bit easier. You know, the contracts that they have where they're not going to be able to, they're not going to have to pay rental fees to the stadiums that they're, that they don't own. You know, they're not going to have to pay those operations. The contracts have changed. They're, they're fewer month to month contracts. So, they do have obligations there, but I do, I do think for me, MLS is going to be okay no matter when they come back because of the financial strength of their ownership group. I have bigger questions about what does USL look like going forward? Do we see some teams you know, take a hiatus? Do we see some teams go under? And, and that's the sad part because whenever that happens, that's jobs for American soccer players 
off the table. And, and that's not a good thing for, for American soccer. Yeah, I agree. And when, when I look at uh, Major League Soccer, this is, uh, you know, a situation where it's not, it's not MLS specific. There, there's only one league that's, that's talked about going fall to spring, and they're technically not, like, fully set up running fall to spring, and that's NISA. But most leagues are running spring to fall, which drives me crazy. Um, I, I think uh, when I look at Major League Soccer, to me, I look at it as an opportunity. It looks like this thing's going to drag out. They need to, to get the match day revenue in from all the matches, as you mentioned. Um, they, part of their discussions right now, I was, see, saw something the other day where they were looking at going deep into December to try to pull that off. Um, you know, at some point I would hope that there are some owners in that room that go, why don't we just get on the same calendar as the rest of, you know, the Northern hemisphere and run some version of a fall to spring with a winter break type setup and, and get our season in. Let's just, you know, take it as like mother nature's <laughs> guiding us in this direction rather than, uh, you know, running it like a, a strike sort shortened season that we've seen in the past with the NBA or major league baseball um, where, you know, you've had a, a, a severe reduction in games and then they came back later in the season and tried to get something done. Um, you know, I, I, I would like to, to, to hope at least that conversation is being had, you know, as part of whatever conversation they're having in terms of logistics and, you know, putting stuff off or trying to figure out, okay, if we started in August, what could we get done? Um, because to me, that's, you know, 34 matches and playoffs and, and including a winter break to account for it is, is really not complicated to pull off from a scheduling standpoint if you're running fall to spring. So yeah. I think the interesting angle to that would be, and I don't disagree that that's a conversation that needs to be had at least, right? I mean, it, it, logistically, it makes a lot of sense, especially, um, you know, especially in the context of the growth of the league. And I think um, you know, I did a podcast last night with Sam Stasekul. It's not out yet, but we talked about the business implications for MLS in this moment. When when the global soccer market kicks off again, Major League Soccer is going to have an opportunity. And no one, I, I, it comes off as crass talking about it, frankly, to to capitalize on what is a really negative global situation. But the one interesting angle to flipping the calendar that I think is going to be a part of those discussions, if they have them, is, is how does it affect the contracts that exist? specifically, most importantly, the media contract, the TV contract that's coming up in 2022. So if you, if you change the, the, the season format right now, when does that contract come up? Does it, do you extend it six months? Or, you know, obviously MLS wants that next contract to be this, you know, the magic bean, right? That the, the giant comes down the stock and is just carrying bags of money. And so they need that contract to be renegotiated. Um, and can they make themselves more attractive? Uh, by doing that, by flipping the calendar, by getting in line with the transfer markets for the bigger European uh, leagues, where maybe now it becomes more natural to sign players before your season versus the middle of your season. Um, but I, I think those are the angles that would be most interesting is, you know, does that extend those negotiations another six months? Would the TV, uh, sorry, the, the ESPNs and the Fox be willing to accept a change in schedule um, that would put MLS up against their other properties, NFL, 
college football. Um, those, those are probably the bigger impediments versus MLS just saying we want to do it. Because I think, you know, we've had – Sam was telling me the other uh, just yesterday he had a conversation with somebody in MLS who was saying, hey, why not – if you've been talking about this merger with Liga MX all the time, why not do it right now? Do a Clausura in the fall uh, with the Liga MX teams and combine the, combine the leagues and make something different and attractive. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, but clearly all of these ideas are being talked about, and it's a matter of making it attractive enough for your partners to say, yes, we're on board, we'll adjust the contracts, and we'll move forward. Well, I know when Eric Winalda was running for president in 2018 and I, I was running in his campaign and, and, and on his team, um, he was talking a lot to the, the members, the, the voters of the federation about this idea of getting all of our professional soccer on a fall to spring calendar. And he had had some conversations, uh, you know, off the record with different media people, some of the, the names and, and, four and three letter words that you mentioned uh, about this idea of fall to spring and what could come of it. And, and they actually were in favor of it um, at that time in 2018, uh, because uh, you're already running up against college football and the NFL in the fall right now with major league soccer and the USL running into October, November. Um, and that's when the, the signature, kind of finals are playoffs are and that's like right in the thick of the NFL college football season which is their ratings bonanza it's actually the the, the networks were actually um, excited about the idea of having American soccer be you know big in April and May when you when you have you know only really the NBA um, wrapping up its season, you know, starting with playoffs and I guess what April, May, somewhere in there running into June. Um, and so, you know, baseball's getting kicked off, but that's not this ratings bonanza in April and May. Um, so they, they actually thought it would be great to kind of clear the decks of those, uh, conflicts, um, and, and have that kind of signature final and, 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 and opportunity to kind of really celebrate that. And the other thing that intrigued them um, and, and this was another conversation Eric was having with a lot of people at the time was right now, the international champions cup, which are, you know, basically just glorified friendlies in the summer that relevant sports puts on and they bring over the likes of, you know, Barcelona and, and Madrid and Liverpool and others to, to play these matches, having major league soccer in the USL and, and all these professional teams, um, you know, essentially in their kind of preseason at lined up with those teams actually provides even more, um, you know, uh, catalog of potential blockbuster matches that people would want to see where right now MLS tries to work some of those in while continuing their season. Um, you know, if they were, you know, in July in, in early part of August, you know, all these MLS teams are hosting the likes uh, of Liverpool and, and Borussia Dortmund and PSG and others. Um, they felt like it'd be a ratings bonanza um, to, to have those teams face off against each other, face off against MLS teams, etc. So I think that business-wise, TV-wise, I think from what I've heard behind the scenes, it, they, they're intrigued by it, not, not you know, dissuaded to, to or, or apprehensive of, of that idea. 
And I think the interesting side of it is I think we've seen MLS in the same way kind of quietly experiment with that idea of not being up against the marquee moments that you're talking about of NFL and college football. And they did it in what I thought was the worst possible way, which is moving MLS Cup from December when they, they stuck it on a weekend when the only college football event happening was the Army-Navy game. They moved it back into November to try to avoid having its playoffs matched up against those bigger NFL games, those bigger college football games, and into October instead, right? And Pablo Maurer and I got a hold of the BCG report that MLS commissioned a few years back. And in that report, they talk about that same idea that you're saying. You know, these are some moments where MLS is matched up against some of the marquee events for the NFL and for college football and in other areas too. Um, where when you're starting your season, you're up against, um, you know, these kind of NBA playoffs and things like that. How can you change that? And um, I think that those ideas in the BCG study actually, to me, were not great ideas. They talked about having mini tournaments in the winter and things like that um, with Liga MX teams. I think we'll see that integrated a little bit. But I, I, I don't think it's um, insignificant. That in that study, something that MLS has used as a pretty, I don't want to say stringent guide, but as certainly something to guide their policy over the last few years, that even in that study that they commissioned, it says, hey, there are some aspects of this calendar that work against you building a TV audience. And so, again, I, I know that there were conversations that the league had back in 2013, 2014 about changing the calendar. and. Publicly, they said that, that those weren't really serious conversations. Privately, they, they were. And I think that um, at some point, those conversations are going to start up again because, because of that TV contract, because of that negotiation in, in 2022. What can they do to make that product as attractive as possible to their TV partners to put the money on the table? And as with every business and with every professional sports league, the thing that drives the decision-making is going to be the money and the revenue. And the one area that MLS lacks compared to any other league in the rest of the world, soccer or professional sports in the U.S., is the TV revenue. Um, right now, they're, they're, I mean, their number one stream of revenue is game day, and that's not a good thing for growth. So um, I would not be surprised if those conversations are happening. And you're right. You know, maybe this is forcing a conversation sooner than MLS wanted it, but maybe it does give them a natural point to say, okay, the best way we can salvage the revenue that we're losing right now is to flip the calendar. Um, I would imagine right now in this unprecedented time that you have to have the conversation that everything has to be on the table. Right. Yeah. And I agree with that. I, you know, to me, that's just part of doing your due diligence. Like, you know, I think every, every card has to be on the table, you know, and, and, and obviously your worst case scenario, if you're a professional league is, is, is the C word cancel, you know, you don't want that conversation. You, you, you certainly don't want to go there. Um, and so you work back from that, obviously what's our best case scenario. Well, you know, it would be to play tomorrow. Well, we know that's not happening. So then, what can we do? And, and when you're working through, you know, solutions, I just think that's got to be one conversation that that's got to be included in, in all of the different conversations about, you know, shortened season, uh, augmented season, et cetera. Um, I, I'm not a fan of the, of the, you know, cross border league idea. I don't even like Canadian teams in, in major league soccer. 
Um, no offense to our, our brethren to the north or the south. We're a continent-sized country. We've got enough markets that could easily fill first division, you know, two, three, four times over. Uh, when you look at the metro market size compared to the countries around the world that operate these, you know, massive first division leagues. Um, and so I, I really just want to see our American league grow and get better. Um, and one of the big things that you mentioned about the TV revenue thing is, is, you know, you've got to have eyeballs, you've got to have viewers and those numbers are not really drastically trending in the right direction for a big payday. Um, the last TV deal had to be bundled with the Federation's national teams just to get one done. Um, and, and so I know, I know Garber is going to want to keep that bundle because that helps him do what he wants to do with major league soccer in terms of, you know, inflating that number and trying to grow it as big as he can. Uh, but I, I think if you, it, it kind of gets to that, that old axiom of, you know, if, if you do what you've always done, expecting different results, that's, you know, that's insanity. Um, in this case, I think they've got to, to, to look at some things and go, okay, Hey, we, if, if we're serious about growing TV revenue and, and making some really big progress in that area, then we've got to do a rethink of what that would mean for us. And, and that might be scheduling. It might be, like I said, the ability to um, have those other side effects of the fall to spring schedule, like having Bayern Munich uh, coming to play, uh, it, you know, against Atlanta United in Atlanta as part of a package now that can be, you know, put together. So, I just I, I think that's a big thing that's got to be part of the conversation, and I you know I'm I'm hopeful that um, you know that there's enough major league soccer owner operators that see why the, that soccer decision actually makes better business sense than status quo and kind of beating our head against a wall. Yeah, I think I think there's um. The way I always refer to it is, is it's a chicken or an egg situation for MLS, right? They want the TV money to go through the roof. Um, but in order to, to see that money go up, then the product has to change and it needs to get better, right? It needs to become more competitive and more compelling to watch. Those numbers need to go up. You need to make people want to tune in. So what comes first, right? If you want the money, if you want the audience, you have to change the product on the field to make the people tune in. And they, but on the flip side, they're saying, well, we need the revenue in order to put more onto the field that would make those people tune in. So which one comes first? And I think, you know, and again, I'm, I'm going to plug my podcast, I guess, with, uh, with Sam last night, Allocation Disorder. But we talked about this moment, I believe, is this inflection point that's been thrust upon MLS. And um, the way Sam put it, I thought was really smart, which is all of these businesses, uh, we, um, whether you're soccer or whether you're uh, the athletic or, you know, an investment company or whatever it may be, there are moments where you have to take advantage of an opportunity and you have to recognize that opportunity and, and bet on it and, and, and get it right. And I think when these markets open back up, we're going to see it flooded with selling teams because there are teams around the world who are going to be in financial distress. And the fastest way in global football to inject money into your club is to sell players, right? It's a great source of revenue for pretty much every league in the world except for MLS, which is finally learning they have to sell players. 
Um, imagine that. So as this happens, we also know that because every owner, even the billionaire owners in MLS are going to be taking this, you know, the economy is what it is globally, right? We're, we're talking about a depression or a recession potentially happening. Everyone's going to take a financial hit. That means the prices on the market are going to drop as well. And there's going to be an opportunity for MLS to say, we have the, the financial standing of our owners to go out and be aggressive and to buy players and to change what this, this league looks like. And in order to do that, they're going to have to change the rules, right? They're going to have to add some more DP spots. They're going to have to inject money into the cap and say, let's take advantage of it. You know, we, we have a chance to leap and catch. I don't want to say catch the, the, the other European leagues, but certainly catch up. And they haven't been catching up in the last five years, even as, as they've added money, everyone else has added more. And I think MLS is falling behind. Here's an opportunity that you can inject the money, jump up way higher in quality and make yourself more attractive for your TV partners. The flip side of that is if, and this is an if, MLS comes back to play some kind of shortened season this fall, it's going to put a lot of stress on those players and on those rosters. You're going to have to use players one through 30. And this is another major point that I think could be transformative for American soccer is all of a sudden teams that were reticent to put young players on the field are going to be forced to do so. And maybe just maybe we're going to see some players surprise us and do well. And when that happens, those teams and those coaches are going to be convinced, hey, maybe I just need to give this kid a shot, this 16-year-old or their 17-year-old, and give him some minutes and he'll surprise me. He'll do more than what I saw in training or he'll respond better than I think he could. And even if that just happens in four teams or five teams, and you add those four or five teams to, to clubs like Dallas or Red Bulls or Philadelphia who are built around the homegrown model, all of a sudden now you have a league with eight, nine, ten teams that are willing to put young American players on the field. And, and we'll see the American player, I think, grow out of that. Now, is that going to happen? I don't know. Those are two areas that are there, right, are there for the change to, to be taken advantage of by MLS and its owners. If those two things happen, if MLS changes its rules kind of midstream here and allows owners to go out and buy players aggressively in a market that I think will be primed for it to do so, I think we'll see some growth, right? And I think we'll see the, the, the product get better and maybe more eyeballs. And now we can start talking about what can we do to make it more attractive for TV partners. If those young players take advantage of opportunities, now we can start talking about how can MLS be a little bit more like the Bundesliga? trusting teenagers on the field and all of a sudden you have a league that's I don't want to say markedly different but certainly significantly better and and I think um, that kind of gets me excited about what could what we could see happen at the end of COVID and you know maybe I'm just excited about it because I'm talking about the light at the end of the tunnel that I don't see right now but I do feel like you know we're talking about things getting forced onto MLS these decisions that are getting forced onto you because of the circumstances. And in addition to the potential change of schedule, those are two massive ideas and massive decisions that could be there to seize. And, and in my mind, could be just as important as that new TV deal, just as important as the 2026 World Cup in altering the landscape of the top division in American soccer, which we know will have a trickle-down effect on, on the lower divisions as well. I agree. I think... You know, the, the, one of the problems I think that, that Don Garber um, has had in his leadership 
is uh, and just looking at like how decisions are made and kind of what has been the focus. It's been a little bit too harsh or or focused on a, a a black or white. I'm either or. I'm you know like I want TV revenue and and like I want that, but then an unwillingness or inability to adapt to how do how do you actually achieve that? Like you can go out and talk about it, but some of the things you talked about are all part of what changes the 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 landscape to make that a, a possibility. Um, you know, so the, the investments, you know, on the field, uh, the investments in terms of, uh, you know, being able to have this, this, you know, stockpile of games that you're, you're not going to get, uh, right now, uh, or, or at least as much of them in with the current kind of spring to fall calendar. I just think there's a lot of things that connect that, um, you know, if if they really put it all on the table and said how do we how do we reach our goals how do we really make stark improvement as you talked about take advantage of a disadvantage um, and 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 try to come out on the other side of this thing better um, I think I think all those things have to be put on the table to say you know here's what we can do here's you know I know that that financially that they have built in you know, limitations to, re, to restrict the risks. Um, and so loosening some of those, um, you know, are going to be necessary to achieve some of those things, but they could, uh, you know, I would prefer them to kind of just go, Hey, we're all in on the world's game playing it the world's way. But if they could at least take some steps in that direction would be better than, than nothing, you know, that's the battle right there. That idea of, risk mitigation that's what mls has kind of been built on and and to the league's credit i mean here it is 25 years later right it still exists it's uh it exists in a strong form um just yesterday we were on a call with eric winalda and um jeff agus and uh bruce arena and and uh eric and bruce both said something about the fact that you know they would never have believed that the league would be here in its in its current form 25 years later and and we have to acknowledge that the way that the league kind of moved forward in 2001 2002 with that meeting to save the league they created some they did all these things to try to give it financial stability and they you know maintained this conservative growth model right that's been the most important thing but at a certain point again i'm gonna, i mean i'm going to harp on it like at a certain point businesses have to take risks and it's okay to grow conservatively when that when that conservative uh, mindset is allowing you to grow right is allowing you to keep pace or keep the right pace to have the level of growth that you're looking to achieve but at, but mls has a chance to accelerate that growth and in order to do that it needs to pull back some of these conservative measures and it's not just Don Garber, right? I mean, they're, you know, we have to remember Don Garber works for the owners of major league soccer. He's an employee. Right. And there, there is a faction of ownership group that, that remain very conservative in how they want this league to grow. And the, you know, maybe for all the negatives that we can talk about with expansion, um, the positive has been, it's brought in a lot of owners who all of a sudden have put $500 million down on the table. And they're saying, what do you mean conservative growth? I got a half a billion dollars of investment in this thing. Let's push it. And that kind of battle that exists between 
Um, I don't even want to call it the new guard because there are some owners who have been around a long time that are ready to move the growth, but the more aggressive thinking ownership groups um, finally start, are starting to have enough weight to push back against those conservative owners. That being said, those conservative owners still have significant sway in this league. They are the chair people of some of the most important committees um, within the board of governors. And until those owners are swayed, until they're turned over to the other side, until they acknowledge that conservative growth is not going to be enough to see the return on investment that everyone wants, the league's not going to change. And, you know, what is going to turn that over? I don't know. You know, maybe it's something as, I don't want to say small as, but maybe it's something as insignificant in the grand picture of Boston getting a downtown soccer stadium. And suddenly the crafts are on the other side of the argument. And that's a huge pendulum swing, right? Now all of a sudden the momentum's over here. You know, maybe it's something like COVID where the evidence put in front of them is of, hey, here's an opportunity that's not going to happen again. You know, don't, we can either miss it or we can hit it, right? You know, maybe it's that. But until those that conservative faction starts to have some defectors, I don't think we're going to see much change. But if you had asked me three or four years ago, do I see that happening in the next 10 years? I would have said no. Right now, do I see it happening in the next five or 10 years? Yes, I do. I do think there's the momentum where, you know, the, the Arthur Blanks of the world are, are getting a little bit more power and a little bit more um, of, of a strength of ownership behind them. And I think it's possible um, certainly before the 2026 World Cup. But, you know, this is going to be, it's going to be down to that idea of, yes, you've built this kind of risk-averse league and it's done really well considering and it's scary to just dive in. But at a certain point, man, what are we in this for, right? What are we in this for? Um, because the potential of the league, the potential of the sport in this country is massive. I mean, massive. and and when you talk to people who are outside of this country who are coming in from the outside and saying, looking at it, you know, I remember sitting down with, with Boston Schweinsteiger here in Chicago and, and he, we are having this debate about how MLS can best grow. And he's pounding the table, you know, talking about like, they got to get rid of the cap and, you know, don't let the best American players leave, just pay, you know, keep the best American players here and get rid of the cap and star players are going to want to come to play in the U United States. Um, it was so obvious to him uh, that, that the cap was the biggest thing holding back MLS. Um, everyone knows where this league can go. I'm not saying you have to eliminate the cap to be successful, but I, you certainly can't maintain the current growth level and become one of the best leagues in the world by 2026, as, as MLS leadership has said. Yeah, and and <laughs> to that point, that's why I say this constantly on the show. Um, don't listen to what people say. Watch what they do. And uh, it's easy to get up and say, we're going to be the best league by, you know, 2022 or 2026 or 2050. It doesn't matter. What are you doing? And uh, to your point, this is a great opportunity to do some things to, uh, to improve the league. Um, uh, I want to shift gear, gears here for just a second on uh, the Federation. Um, what, are, what are you hearing? I mean, obviously, all the news uh, surrounding the legal trouble with U.S. soccer is with the U.S. women's national team, but there are multiple lawsuits, as, as we both know, uh, facing uh, the Federation. What are you hearing on all of those fronts in terms of, you know, settlement or progress and, and how has COVID kind of impacted uh, the legal 
um, you know, cases that, uh, face, that are facing the Federation? Well, I think there's certainly been an impact from COVID because the courts are closed. Um, and so that's going to delay some of the trials from potentially starting. Some of those dates are going to get pushed back. And um, as a result, maybe there won't be uh, the timeline that, that we expected before for resolution. I, I can say, I think that the top priority within U.S. soccer right now is that lawsuit with the women's national team. And I believe that um, there will be a settlement at some point. Now, the question is going to be how much money, right? And, and right now, they're pretty far apart because of that FIFA prize money that kind of sits at the middle of this conversation. You know, should U.S. soccer be responsible for um, matching what the men's teams are awarded for winning a World Cup? Um, I don't know where that number is going to land, but I do think that um, conversations about settlements are going to accelerate. And we've already seen the legal movement toward that, right? We saw the change in uh, representation to Latham and Watkins, and we saw the filings that they did where they're pulling out those arguments. And not only are they pulling them out, which you can do quietly, they did so quite loudly, right, in the filings to let everyone know and let the articles be written that this is no longer a part of our, um, our legal strategy. Um, I, I believe that the, that the focus will turn toward uh, trying to find a settlement. Um, we've heard from the Women's National Team Players Association and their response was very short, which is just, uh, there's one way to, to settle this and it's equal pay. So um, it's one thing to, kind of what you just said, it's one thing to say you want to settle, it's another thing to do it, right? Um, what's it going to take to actually do it? And I think, um, I don't know when we'll have that resolution because of this ongoing situation, right? I mean, the sport, the world is in kind of a crisis right now. And, and um, it's, I, I think, one interesting angle to this, and I don't know why it's this way. Uh, I think it's this way in kind of like all types of business sometimes is getting face to face and sitting down across the table um, sometimes helps a deal happen faster than it does over the phone. And th those meetings aren't happening right now. They're not going to take place. Um, can they get it done over the phone? Maybe, you know, maybe they're going to be having Zoom, Zoom meetings to, uh, to settle. But I, I do think there's an impact. As for the other... Well, hopefully um, we get to watch those, right? If they're going to yeah, Zoom, right? send someone, us all an invite. So we can just watch, record. pop some popcorn and, uh, and, just, and just sit back and relax. Yeah, somebody's going to controversially have a screen record on and, uh, and send it out to... I would have said Deadspin if it was still around. Maybe they can send it to The Athletic. Um, the Athletic, TMZ. I mean, there, I think there's a, a host of places that would be sure. happy to share that content. Sure. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I do think that uh, we'll start to see these cases. Like the relevant case as an example, that's so far down the line at this point, And there's been so much money spent. I think... The VAT, we were told at least that the vast majority of that $9 million in legal fees, um, a good chunk of it was for that relevant case because U.S. soccer has um, insurance policies that cover some of these um, legal fees up to a certain amount. And the insurance policy for that relevant filing was maximized. So um, that money is coming out of the pockets of U.S. soccer now, the ledger of U.S. soccer directly. Um, which is why that, that made up the majority. It's not that that case is more costly necessarily. It's just that that insurance policy is up so or maximized. So, um, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I would imagine that 
there will be conversations across the board now that new leadership is there to see if there's resolution. But I think we'll see most of those cases play out in the courts once those dockets get back to kind of their regular schedule. Um, I think the one exception off the bat is going to be the U.S. women. Um, and and it, it does matter also, I think, um, as part of a legal strategy to prioritize settlement versus prioritizing a lawsuit. And just that change in mentality, set aside what the arguments are in the lawsuit. The, the legal strategy to turn from we're going to win this in court and we believe we can win this in court to we're going to try to settle, um, I think is, is not, not something that should be just brushed aside. That's, that's a significant decision. And um, hopefully for the sake of the sport in this country, it's one that, um, that leads to some kind of positive development in what has been, I think, an embarrassment for um, for U.S. soccer on multiple levels, uh, as we've seen. Um, now, you know, the hard part is coming to an agreement, right? right? Coming to that settlement. Yeah, and I, I second your uh, your opinion there on the embarrassment. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of decisions and actions that I think are embarrassing uh, from a for a national governing body, um, and uh, and and I think it's why we've seen so many. Um, legal challenges to the Federation because people just said enough is enough uh, with, from, from different aspects, you know, and, uh, and I think, you know, hopefully on the, uh, on the U S women's national team case um, we, we get to a place where the both teams are treated uh, equally. Um, and um, I know that was, um uh, you know, a big issue for Eric when he was running and the, the women he had spoken to on the athlete council about that was, was it goes beyond people say, use the word equal pay. And I, I think the U S women's national team have even used that term equal pay. And I know it's kind of a buzzword, but it actually goes beyond that. It's equal treatment. Um, and that's a, that's a whole nother level. Um, and, and hope solo has talked about it publicly about the treatment of, you know, training, travel, and, and, and other things where it, it goes beyond just the, the, the financial monetary piece. It's also just, you know, how are, how are we held uh, in esteem versus how the men are held in esteem uh, in, in kind of what you, you mentioned. Do we settle? Do we fight? It's, it, it's also how, how do we view the women's national team versus the men's national team? So there, there's, a, there's a, I think, a lot of culture changes within the Federation that need to happen in order to, to get the settlement where it needs to be. Uh, it, you know, I'm glad that they're saying and indicating that they want to reach a settlement, but, um, you know, the actions of what that settlement looks like and where they um, you know, enter those negotiations and conversations from whatever that kind of frame of reference and point of view is, uh, is also, I think, going to be telling to, to, to see whether or not we've seen a cultural shift under Cindy Parlo Cohn as president uh, and, and Will Wilson as the new CEO, or is it kind of lipstick on a pig? Like we're, we're kind of going in that direction, but we're not actually fully, you know, embracing that. So, um, you know, again, words really don't mean anything. Let's see what they do. Um, and, and the women keep doing 
their job. They keep winning and performing and excelling. And uh, I think we, we need to treat them uh, like the champions that they are. So Paul, thanks for, for coming on the show. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, uh, stay safe with all the COVID-19 stuff and, and, and you and your family, uh, how can people follow your work, connect with you and the athletic and, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the podcast, uh, that you do with, with Sam, how can they listen to that? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me on and, and same to you and to everyone that's wa- that are watching and listening, stay safe, stay inside, wash your hands, don't touch your face, all those things that we've, we've heard over and over again. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Paul Tenorio. Um, obviously theathletic.com. Uh, we have a great deal right now in the middle of all this. It's three months of a free trial. So you can get three months of the athletic and the day before that three months is up cancel and you don't ever pay a dime. Um, or you can pay the five bucks a month after that, uh, which I think is a pretty good deal for sports fans. Um, and allocation disorder is, is through that, through the athletic app, but it's also through total soccer show which means that right now it's outside of the paywall. You can listen to Allocation Disorder through the Total Soccer Show feed on any of your uh, podcasting channels, whether it's Spotify, iTunes, whatever it is you might use. We're within the Total Soccer Show feed. You just got to look for the ones that are labeled Allocation Disorder. Uh, the, the episode we recorded last night should hopefully be out at some point. Um, you know, you guys are, are buying right now. If you go look, look for it now, you should be able to find it. Um, and... Uh, and that's the way to find find my work. And hopefully, um, hopefully, you'll see some reporting from me in the next few months that that indicates that some of the changes we talked about, the potential changes, the opportunities that are there, are uh, are being grasped by the different parties that we've discussed today. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that you know any progress for me is, is good, right? Even if it's even if it's you know small steps, I want to see big changes and and sweeping changes. But we we get there one step at a time. So any any progress we can get, I'll take it. Right. So uh, anyway, well, thanks, Paul. Stay safe. We'll talk soon. And thanks for coming on the show. no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens.
Big thanks to Paul for jumping on the show. Thanks for watching today. Uh, we, we went uh, a little bit longer than we, we normally do on a Monday, but I uh, appreciate uh, Paul spending time with us and wanted to bring you that full interview today. Thanks for watching. As always, we appreciate it. We look forward to seeing everyone again tomorrow. Have a great day, everyone. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Social distance. Hopefully, we'll get this get through this sooner rather than later. Goodbye.